they never satisfied. They never satisfied. had a missions meeting in St. Louis this last week. I drove into the city on Monday, late afternoon. The missions meeting for Central India Christian Mission was to be Tuesday morning, first thing. It just so happened that the World Series game was in St. Louis on Monday evening. I was so tempted to go to that game. I had earlier checked ticket prices found an available ticket that I could have purchased online for $370. And I came that close to clicking that button. And Cindy, my wife, had even said, go ahead and do it. I grew up outside of St. Louis as a kid, uh, just 40 miles from the stadium, and regularly went to Cardinal games and have been a, a fan of the Cardinals all my life, and, and I've never been to a World Series game. And so the thought of going to this World Series game Monday night, it, it was so tempting. And, and she's saying, you know, go. It can be your Christmas present and your birthday and our anniversary and next Christmas in 2014. <laughs> I finally decided I, I just can't do it. I cannot justify paying that kind of money for a ticket, especially when it was just me. I call, actually called my son Jonathan, and I said, would you happen to be available Monday night to go to a World Series game in St. Louis? And he was not available. And I almost went, boy, I'm glad, because I would have probably had to buy his ticket too. Uh, our missions meeting was at a church in Illinois just across the the line into St. Uh, Louis there. The fellow hosting the meeting was not even there Monday evening for the meal that we were all gathering for. He was at the ball game. Uh, he had a fellow in his church, a member of his church that is in an accounting firm there in St. Louis, apparently in a pretty high position, and he, was, he had tickets. He had four tickets. To the Cardinals game and he offered his preacher and wife the opportunity to go with him and his wife and I'm thinking man if there was somebody in our congregation that had that kind of connection uh, wanted to invite their preacher I'd be glad to go but uh, he, he actually sent us a text uh, with pictures of where he was sitting and uh, it almost made me envious he was on the first row right behind the Cardinals' dugout. And uh, he had received a couple of balls during that game. One, they just flipped over the, the top of the dugout right into his hands. The other was a foul ball. And uh, then he said to me that Tuesday morning something that just made my head spin. He said, the guy that he was with who gave him the tickets in the middle of the game told him that he had been offered $14,000 for those two tickets. $7,000 a piece. We live in a crazy world, don't we? The person who offered him that kind of money was crazy, and he was crazy for not taking the money. <laughs> 
And I later thought, if I was Scott, that preacher friend of mine who, who had received those two tickets and he learned that story of what he had, this fellow had been offered for his seats, I think I would have been asking him for the cell number of that guy. You know, can I call him? <laughs> the God of entertainment does not satisfy. We talked about that last week. Even if the Cardinals had won the game, the satisfaction would have been so short-lived. And maybe you read from Kyle Eidelman's book this last week as he talked about the God of success and the God of money and the God of achievement. These gods do not satisfy either. There is only one God who satisfies, and that is the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who satisfies. And that truth is made very clear in Scripture. I want to read to you from Luke chapter 18. This morning, chapter 18, verses 18 through 27. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Now most of your Bibles may have the same kind of heading over this passage of Scripture as what mine does. Mine says, the rich young ruler. And he has called this because those three words describe him to a T. He was rich. According to Matthew's account or Mark's account, he owned much property. Luke spells that out for us very clearly. It says that he was extremely rich. That it doesn't say he was he was a little bit rich. No, he was extremely rich. He was over the top rich. And he was young. Matthew's account emphasizes that Eidelman mentioned in his book this word young probably meant under the age of 40. And so this fella is in the prime of his life. And besides that, he is a ruler. And so we call him the rich young ruler. This fellow had it going according to the world's standards. And the text says that he came to Jesus with a question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's something wrong with that question. The word inherit could be translated earn or acquire. And and I would imagine, too, as he asked this question, there was a lot of emphasis upon the word do and the word I. What must I do to inherit or earn eternal life. I'm thinking probably this fellow used 
was used to, to having a checklist in front of him. He wanted Jesus to give him a checklist of what it was going to take for him to merit this badge of eternal life. Jesus played along with him for just a little while. He gave him the checklist that he was asking for. The checklist was a grouping of the Ten Commandments. It was, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder... Do not lie. Honor your father and mother. You keep these commandments and you will inherit eternal life. The young man responded with confidence. He says, oh, I got those. I've kept those commandments from my youth. Now, I'm quite sure that he was mistaken there. He had not kept all of those commandments all of the time. But Jesus didn't correct him. He went to a much deeper issue because Jesus was able to look into this man's heart and see that he was an idolater. His idol was that of money. And so Jesus calls for him to get rid of his idol. He said, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and then come and follow me. I want to remind you of this other passage that we've read earlier in the service. We read it together. Jesus was speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus was calling for this young man to make a decision. He said, you have to choose. Behind door number one is your money and all of your possessions. Behind door number two is me. And there is no door number three that says, if you choose door number three, you can have the first two. No, This man had to make a decision between door number one and door number two, between Jesus and his money. Might I highlight for you, too, what Mark chapter 10, verse 21 says. It says that Jesus felt a love for this young man. He cared for him greatly to such an extent that he's willing to speak the truth to him. He didn't want to leave any room for confusion. He said to him, Do you really want to know how to have eternal life? Then put away your gods. In this case, put away your God of money and have me as the center of your worship. I can't help but think that that is a message that so many people today need to hear. Jesus will not play second fiddle to anything else, to any other God, to our love for money or our love for anything else, he demands to be first in our lives. For a moment this morning, a few moments, let me share with you some lies that the God of money has told us. Lie number one, money will satisfy you. It will not satisfy you. No matter how much of it you might have. I would imagine that there will be no one here in this auditorium that will ever have the amount of money that Solomon had. Second Chronicles chapter 9 describes the vast wealth of King Solomon. In one year's time, he had 666 talents of gold 
come in. I have a, a footnote in my Bible that says that was in excess of $3.8 billion in today's currency. That's just one year's worth of gold that come in. And so we can assume that that was multiple years. Every year he had that kind of amount of gold coming into his possession. And that didn't count the, the amount of gold that was being brought to him as a gift from foreign leaders. People were coming from around the world to meet Solomon. They wanted to see his kingdom. They wanted to hear his wisdom. And as they came, they brought to him gifts of gold. And Solomon had more gold and more silver than what he knew what to do with. First Chronicles chapter 9, or Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 27 says, He made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. I was trying to think of a comparison that I might say to you that we could, could better understand the amount of gold or the amount of silver that Solomon had. And this is what I came up with. He made silver as common as dandelions here in the spring in Kansas. I mean, this fella had gold and silver coming out of his ears. It was an unlimited amount for Solomon. Let me read to you what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He said, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. You know, we ought to take the word from someone who knows. Money does not bring satisfaction to us. Let me read to you from Kyle Eidelman's book as he's writing on this subject. And, and uh, this is interesting to me because I, I uh, have known Kyle for not, not close up by any means, but I've known his family for a number of years and his wife actually was in the youth group uh, at Tyro when I was there on, on staff. And so I've known Desiree for a number of years as well since she was a little girl. And this is what he writes. My wife and I were young, newly married, and living in a tiny house that cost $25,000. The monthly payment is etched into my memory as, as numbers tend to be when you don't have much. $213 per month. That 700 square home was the best we could manage and we looked on the bright side. For example, you just had to plug in the vacuum cleaner once its cord could reach every wall in the house from one outlet. And we certainly didn't get tired of running up flights of stairs or jogging over to the west wing. It was small, but it was cozy. We didn't have central heat. We had a floor furnace that took up most of the only hallway in the house. There wasn't room on the sides to walk around it, and it was too long to step over. So, to avoid burning your feet, you had to take a running leap to clear it. Luckily, I had married a high school hurdler from the woman's track team. I had no idea that skill would come in handy. I remember lying in bed in the morning and hearing her take a four-step running start to jump over the floor furnace. The house did not have double-pane windows, so ice formed on the inside of our windows. 
It was my job to get the ice scraper from our car and scrape the ice off the windows inside the house. The walls were paper thin, so if the dog next door was barking or his stomach was growling, we got it in high fidelity. I'm fairly certain that the one bathroom we had was taken out of a small airplane. We were full-time college students, and that was life. We ate our Roman noodles and pasta three nights a week. A night on the town meant ice water for two and splitting an appetizer. Our goal was to keep the check under six bucks. Yep, the, the servers loved us. My wife and I were recently lying in bed reminiscing and playing Can You Top This with Austerity Stories, cracking each other up. Then we grew quiet. And she said, are you any happier now than you were then? I didn't even have to think. No, he said. No, I said, I am not. The truth is, probably a lot of us can share those kinds of stories. And we would have to agree with his conclusion. More money does not mean more satisfaction. Let me give to you a second lie lie, that the God of money feeds us. Money means that you matter. If you have a lot of money, then you're worth something. You're significant. If you don't have a lot of money, if you're poor, then you're insignificant. That's a lie. And yet the world has bought into that lie. People who have a lot of money, you know it as well as I do. Oftentimes the red carpet is rolled out for that person and they are catered to. And people who don't have a lot of money, well, they have to open their own door and they are pretty much turned away from by the world. And I pray that will never be the case here with our church. Amen. That, that we will never treat one group of people better than another group of people depending on what they have in their pocketbook. May everybody be, be on equal plane here in this church. The truth is God loves the poor person just as much as he loves the rich person. The truth is Jesus died for the poor person just as much as he died for the rich person. And if you really want to know the truth, the rich person has a lot less chance of making it to heaven than what the poor person does because the rich person is more inclined to depend on his riches than on God. He is more inclined to swallow this lie that if you have more money, then you matter more. And so he's caught up in this this effort to try and find significance in his bank account rather than in God. And he's inclined to to look down on his poor neighbor. But you know what he's going to find in the end? He's going to find that the, the God of money has duped him. Having more money does not mean that you matter more. Your significance and my significance is based more on who we are in Jesus. If we have accepted Jesus as Savior, then we have every reason in the world to be significant, to feel significant. We are God's child. 
We are of royal descent. We are special. We are loved by the God of this universe, the creator. We have been ransomed by the blood of the lamb. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are adopted into the family of God. We are promised his presence and his help through hardship. Heaven is ours if we hold on to him. You and I are the apple of his eye. Our significance is not in our bank account or the kind of car that we drive or the the house that we live in. Our significance is in the fact that we belong to him. Let me give to you a third lie that the God of money feeds us. Money will make you secure. Just increase your money supply and you can have more peace of mind. Increase your money supply and you have less reason to worry. You will be able to take care of yourself, whatever comes along. But that's a lie. What if the stock market crashes? What then of your security if it's been in money? What if, what if your money or your stuff is stolen or burned up? What happens to your security at that point? What if your source of money dries up? What if your job is taken away from you? What if your retirement account doesn't last as long as what you thought it would? What if your, what if your health turns sour? What if cancer comes? What if your spouse dies unexpectedly and you're left alone? Is, if, if money has been your security, is, is money going to fix all of that? No. No, it will not. Our security must be in Jesus, for he is the only one who can give to us true peace and security. Watch this video clip. I'm an idolater because I'm serving money. And then the Lord took me to the New Testament when he said, you cannot serve both God and money. So I began to think, am I really serving money? And what's so wrong with that? Is there something wrong with serving money? So I ask him, what do you want me to do to serve you? And the answer came back, I want you to die to the love of this world and all the things in this world and all the things that you've ascribed to money, those come from me. Our security must be in Jesus, not not in money. Our peace of mind must come from Jesus, not from money. Our hope comes from Jesus, not from money. Let me give to you a fourth lie that the money God gives to us. Money will save you. Now, you and I may wonder, how could somebody even fall for that lie? And yet, many people do they put everything that they have into making more money and having more things and they live as though all of that is going to save them and what they end up with is disappointment and frustration and emptiness 
and meaninglessness. And finally, if they're not careful, they're, they're going to end up like the guy in Luke chapter 12. He's building his bigger barns, replacing the barns that he has, and all of a sudden, his life ends here on the earth. It was totally unexpected, and his name is called, and he finds himself standing before God, giving account to, to God for his life. Do you remember what God said to him? You fool. You fool. He was unprepared to meet God because he had put his stock in the wrong places. Let me read to you a modern-day parable from this book. It's called The Parable of Frank. Frank Simmons was a man who committed to doing whatever it took to be successful. He didn't come from a family with much money, but things were going to be different for him. Even when he was in high school, he evaluated his future career based on what would make him the most money. He considered going into medicine, not because he was passionate about helping people, but because he knew the money was good. But he finally decided on being a stockbroker. He got married his senior year in college and soon started a family, but he was working 14-hour days, often seven days a week. When he was at home, he found he was preoccupied with work and the state of his investments. Then, when he started his own company, his occupation became his preoccupation. He became known as one of the best market timers in the business world. He always seemed to know when was about to take uh, 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 when something was about to take a downturn and what the next sure thing would be. His wife would ask if they could go out sometime, just the two of them. She, rem she tried to remind him how quickly the kids were growing up. There was little league games and, and dance recitals to attend. He would usually say something like, yeah, just, just let me get caught up. Next week should work. But he was always catching up. And before long, they stopped asking they knew where they stood. Frank would occasionally go to church to be seen by some of his clients, but most of the time, his family would go without him. By the time he was 40, Frank described himself as a self-made millionaire. But with the rise of the Internet, Frank realized that he could make some real money providing online investment opportunities. He would check his stocks 20 times a day and watch his, his fortune grow. One weekend, he flew his wife to Naples to share her or to show her the beachfront property he was going to purchase for their dream home. He told her the big news. By this time next year, I'll take the company public. We'll be set for life. We'll have everything we could ever want. We'll be able to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. We'll have more than enough. She didn't say it out loud, but she thought to herself, for Frank, there will never be enough. A few days later, back at the office, Frank closed on the property. That very night, he was driving his Mercedes home from the office, and he took a corner a little too fast. By the time they found him, he had already been dead for four hours. His death was big news in financial circles. He even made Section B of the, of the Wall Street Journal, where they told his success story. They used words like visionary and trendsetter to describe him. His life was the American dream. But while he was being remembered here on earth as a huge success, 
Frank was standing before his creator trying to give an account of his life. And it turns out that with all his entrepreneurial accomplishments and his extraordinary portfolio, God was not impressed. He was not impressed with the car he drove, his vacation home, or the company that he had built. John Tillotson puts it this way, he who, put, he, he who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment but a fool forever. Don't buy into the lies that the God of money tries to feed you. Money will not and cannot save you. There is only one God who can save you. And that is the Lord God of heaven and his son Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, may the truth speak to us today. Help us to realize that you are the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And you are the one that we need to be giving our heart to. We understand that we we need to have money to buy food and to buy shelter and clothing and just to have our needs met. We're not saying that money is evil. we understand how our perspective can be so twisted. So help us to have a clear perspective. Help us to have your eyes and your mind and your heart. Help us to have you first in our life. Lord, if there's anyone here today not walking with you first in their life, help them to understand that life is so fragile. And just even in a moment, we could be snatched away to stand before you for all eternity to give an account for our life. So help us to be ready. We pray this in Jesus' name.